Our God is the God of the miraculous. Our God creates by his word. He speaks and the universe comes into being. Our God sends plagues on Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. He flattens the walls of Jericho. He makes the sun stand still in the sky. Our God is the God of miraculous births. Abraham and Sarah have a baby, Isaac, even in their old age. And the most miraculous of all, God becomes flesh. The Virgin Mary gives birth to a Savior who will grow up to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind. He will walk on water, cast out demons, and feed thousands. And most of all, he will rise from the dead. Our God is a God of the miraculous, amen? But our God is also the God of the ordinary, isn't he? Though he sometimes overrules the normal course of nature to accomplish his plan and reveal his glory, more often than not, our God works within the bounds of normal events, normal circumstances, everyday life. He governs the normal everyday circumstances of life in such a way that his purposes come to pass. And we call this truth providence. It's a word that maybe you don't use a lot, a word that's an old word, but it's a good word. It's the doctrine of providence. Providence simply means this, that God actively preserves and governs his creation. And his control over all things, his sovereignty is not without purpose. It's not without direction. It's not random. It's not arbitrary. It's not meaningless. Providence is the outworking of God's plan from before time in the ordering of events in time. And he does it all for his glory. Daniel 4.35 says, He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. God declares in Isaiah 46, verse 9, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.11 that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. The same power that created the universe now holds it together and governs it according to his will. This includes gnats and nations. It includes swirling dust out in the street and psychotic dictators around the world. It includes national elections and natural disasters, spilled milk and missed field goals. God's will controls everything. Nothing is outside of his control. And whether God controls all things by the, employing natural processes, as he often does, or whether he governs by suspending these natural processes and performing a miracle, doesn't matter. In either case, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And as believers, we must embrace this truth. The reality that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that it is his providence that guides the outcome of all things, that should humble us. We need to be reminded this morning that we are not the masters of our own destiny. But that truth also ought to comfort us. We are not the victims of fate. 
And it ought to free us to step out in faith, knowing that God is always providentially guiding all things towards his desired outcome. Rather than paralyzing us, this understanding of providence actually moves us to action. Genesis 24 is a gripping story with twists and turns, with risk and reward, and a story that shows us remarkable faith in God's remarkable providence. Hopefully you're already there. Genesis chapter 24, the scene is set for us in verses 1 through 9 as Abraham commissions his servant. We see this commission from Abraham. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. You remember what we talked about last week, Abraham's wife Sarah is dead, and he's buried her there at Hebron in the, the cave that he purchased. And the text, although it doesn't explicitly say this, it gives us the impression that Abraham understands that his death is soon approaching as well. His journey of faith is nearly complete. And Moses affirms that God had done what he promised. God had blessed him in all things. Abraham is in the land. He has a son. And God's given him great success and made his name great among his surrounding neighbors. But Even though we acknowledge that God has blessed him in all things, we also know that there is more to the promise. There is more coming in the future. And the future fulfillment of the promise requires that there be someone around to receive it. You see, as Abraham dies, the promise will not. It must continue. And what that means is that Isaac, Abraham's son, needs a wife. He needs a wife so that Abraham can become the father of a great nation that will inherit the land to become a source of blessing to the entire world. So what Abraham does here is he calls his chief servant near, his most trusted employee, and he gives him a tall order, a difficult commission. He tells him to go find a wife for Isaac. This would have typically been something that the parents did, that they arranged themselves. But Abraham is unable to do this, so he gives this task to his servant. Look in verse 2. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had. So he's a very trusted man. Here's what he says. Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. This is a serious task. It's a serious task. And we see that because of the oath that he has him swear. This is a very intimate handshake, to put it discreetly. And, and, And it's not just a random thing. It has the promise of procreation in view. As the servant places his hand under Abraham's thigh... Abraham's descendants, that's what he's swearing on. But it not only has his progeny in view, it also has the promise of God in view. Remember that circumcision was the sign of the covenant. And the servant is swearing on that. Abraham's progeny and the promise of God are riding on this task, this commission, and he has him swear to it. The promises will not die with Abraham. They will continue through his descendants. They will be the bearers of the covenant. And that's what this gesture means. And he has him swear by the Lord, Yahweh, the God of promise, who is the God of heaven and earth, the God of creation, the God who made all things and the God who covenanted himself together with me. I want you to swear on his name that you will do this. It's a serious task, but it's a specific task. Notice what he says. 
And his concerns here show us why Isaac, although he's perhaps nearing the age of 40 at this time, it shows why he's still single. He says, see to it, see to it, in verse 6, that you do not take my son back there, back to my home. He's very urgent that he gets a wife from his homeland, but that Isaac himself doesn't go back there. It's a specific task. Under no circumstances is Isaac to leave, and under no circumstances is Isaac to marry one of our neighbors. Why is Abraham so insistent on this? You have to ask the question, is Abraham, is he kind of racist towards the Canaanites? Is he like, they're not good enough for my son? Is that what he's saying? Why is that? Well, I think there's a few reasons why Abraham is so insistent that he marries someone from back home and that Isaac doesn't leave the land. You, you can see here that the servant asks a question in verse 5. Well, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham says to him at that point, see to it that you do not do that. Do not take my son back there. He says, don't leave. Isaac can't leave, but it can't be one of these women. Why is he so insistent? Well, number one, the women of the land were not of the right character to be part of the family of promise. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham did. He hadn't forgotten. Do you remember the, the promise of God back in chapter 15, 16? He said, I will give you this land, but not yet. Your descendants will go into captivity for several hundred years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Abraham knows that judgment is coming upon the people of the land. He does not want his son to become intermingled with them and to forfeit the promise. But he's also concerned, secondly, because he knows the people of Canaan were destined to lose the land. And, and this takes us all the way back earlier in Genesis. Do you remember when Noah gets off the ark and his son, Ham, dishonors him? And he curses him and says, cursed be your son, Canaan. There is a curse upon these people and they are destined to be dispossessed of this land. The promise, the covenant promise that God had given Abraham said to your descendants, I will give this land. If Isaac were to intermarry with, this, with these people, he's aligning himself with those that were destined not only for judgment, but to lose this land. And that's also why he can't leave the land. He doesn't want Isaac to forfeit the covenant promises. Isaac does need a wife, but not at the expense of the blessings God had promised him. And the servant asks him a question. We read it already in verse 5. What's plan B? What if she doesn't come with me? I can go and say, hey, I know a guy that you should marry. But how, well, what if that doesn't work? I mean, how many of you, do we have, how many single ladies we have in here? We have a couple. Are you guys interested in that? Some random guy shows up and says, I know a guy and you're supposed to marry him. What if she doesn't go? Is there a plan B? Well, notice Abraham's source of confidence in verses six through eight. The servant asks this logical question. Abraham says, see to it that you do not take my son back there. And here's what he says. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Abraham's source of confidence is the providence of God. Do you see what he said? He will send his angel before you. He says, listen, God is going to work this out. God has a plan. God will provide. He knows that God will provide. He went to sacrifice his son, and there was the ram trapped in the thicket. 
The Lord will see. The Lord will provide. Abraham knew this. He is confident that God will work it out. He is confident that God's providence will bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. That is the source of his confidence. But he's humble about this. In verse 8, notice what he says. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. He understands that, you know what, I think God is going to work this out. I'm confident that he will lead you to the right one. But if God decides not to, I'm sure he has something better worked out. And you're free from this oath. He's humble about that. But then he closes again by reiterating his insistence. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. He still won't let go of his emphatic insistence that, Isaac cannot leave the land. He's got to stay here. This is what God has promised. We're not leaving. I buried my wife here. I'm going to be buried here. And Isaac needs to stay. You know, it's interesting. These are the final words that we hear Abraham speak in the book of Genesis. In a sense, this is his deathbed scene. And as one commentator puts it, Abraham passes out of history with the promise on his lips. This land God swore it to me. He took me from my home, and we need to be here. And I'm fully expecting that God will do all that he has said. Like Hebrews 11:13 says, all these died in faith, referring to Abraham and Sarah, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And this is how Abraham exits the stage. As Gordon Wenham puts it, with the promise on his lips. This is the mission and it may seem like mission impossible to this servant. I'm supposed to go hundreds of miles away and meet these people who have no idea who I am that I've never met and convince somebody to come back and marry Isaac. Okay. Verses 10 through 61, really the bulk of this chapter. Mission accepted. The servant humbly obeys. And he swears to fulfill his master's wishes. In verse 9, he puts his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. He says, I'm all in. I'll do it. I'll do what you've asked me to do. And he undertakes the long journey in verse 10. The servant took 10 of his master's camels, which would have been not only transportation, they would have been beasts of burden to carry all the wealth he was bringing, all the choice gifts that it says from his master. Would have been a big display that, hey, my master is well off, and this is an eligible bachelor. And he undertakes the journey. He arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Nahor, named after Abram's, Abraham's relative. What we see here is that trust in God's pro- providence leads to action. He believes that God will send his messenger before him, that God will fulfill his promises. He believes it enough to saddle up 10 camels, load them up, and travel 500 miles at least to Abraham's homeland. It would have taken them at least a month, maybe more, That'd be like you and I walking to Denver from Lawrence. That's not a small journey. That's a big trip. And then they finally arrive, and he has to figure out challenge number one. And challenge number one, when he finally arrives, is finding the right girl. How is he going to find this girl, the right one to marry? Look what happens in verse 11. He makes the camels kneel down outside the city by the well, the well of water, at the time of evening, The time when women go out to draw water. Verse 12, and he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. 
and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. How does he begin to solve challenge number one, finding the right girl? He stops and he prays. He prays, and his prayer is founded on faith in the promise. He's praying to the God of my master, Abraham, the God of promise. And he asks that this God would grant him success and show steadfast love. In the Hebrew text, this, this phrase, steadfast love, is one word. It's an important word, hesed, steadfast love. And this word is used to describe God's steadfast love, his faithfulness to his covenant promises. Steadfast, not flaky, not intermittent, not the kind of love that fails or quits or gives up. As one of our children's books puts it, the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God. That's what he's praying for. God, I know that you are the God of promise, and I'm praying for you to keep your promises and show steadfast love. He says it twice, steadfast love to my master. This is a powerful basis for prayer. He's not praying for something illegitimate. He's praying for God to keep his promises. We look in Psalm 136 and see this refrain again and again and again that God's steadfast love endures forever. David writes, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. The whole psalm is that way, this constant refrain that God has said his steadfast love, his covenant mercy and faithfulness, it never stops. It never ends. And listen, that's the basis for his prayer. His prayer is not rooted in fear. It's not rooted in selfish desires. It's not, he's not trying to manipulate things for his own good. He says, God, I want to see you be faithful to your promises. And I'm so confident in your character that I'm going to ask you for this because I know that this is who you are and this is what you are like. And he prays. Notice what he says in verse 14. So that I will know that she is the one whom you have appointed for your servant, Isaac. I know that Isaac is to be the heir of the promise and I know that you have appointed a wife for him. He is confident in God's his God's, in God's providence, that God has a plan. So he's praying for it. But I also want you to notice this, that his prayer is marked by wisdom. It's not only rooted in the promise and confident in God's providence, but it's marked by wisdom. I don't think that his prayer is presumptuous or self-seeking. He's serving another here. It's not based in fear or desire to avoid responsibility. He's not saying, God, I'm supposed to do something, but I'm not gonna do it unless you prove to me it's what you want me to do. No, he's walked 500 miles for a month. He's all in at this point. He's already demonstrated faith in God. And the signs that he asks for, even these signs are not random or unnatural. If you think about it, what he's asking for and the kind of girl he's looking for is evidence of righteous character. Time and time again, we've seen that for these patriarchs, the way that their righteousness was often demonstrated was how? It was through hospitality, the way they treated guests and sojourners. This woman was to be the kind of woman who would show hospitality, who would serve a stranger. 
one who had just come from a long journey. Not only hospitality, it was going to be hard work to water all of his camels, 10 of them, who could drink 20 to 30 gallons apiece, and her jar was probably about three gallons worth. And that's a lot of trips up and down to the well. That's a lot of heavy work, pulling that water up. She was to be not only a hospitable woman, but hardworking and one who takes initiative. Righteous, godly character is what he's looking for. This is no random pattern in the sky. He's looking for the right kind of girl who could take Sarah's place as the matriarch for the family of promise. He's looking for good fruit. So his prayer is is rooted in the promise. It's confident in God's providence and his character, and it's marked by wisdom. He's asking for the right kinds of things. And notice we see God's provision amazingly in verses 15 through 25. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca, now the narrator, Moses, is filling us in. You know, the servant doesn't know all these details yet, but he tells us that this girl who walks up is Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. She's from the right family. And she came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance. He didn't ask for that. That's a big bonus. A maiden whom no man had known. She's unmarried, a virgin. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. Now's the moment of truth. He's taken his shot. We're going to see if it lands. And you guys know how the story goes. She said in verse 18, Drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand. You see there her eagerness to serve her hospitality and gave him a drink. Verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Now that's even more than he had asked for. He had asked that she would offer to give them a drink. She said, I will water them until they have finished drinking. There's a big difference. For a camel to get a drink versus filling up is a big difference. We're talking 20 to 30 gallons here, and that's what she offers. So she quickly, verse 20, again, you see her hospitality, her initiative. She emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. And the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. It's amazing here. We see God's providence. Before the servant is even done praying, she walks up. The right girl with the right kind of character at the right time to the right spot. And she, she's been on her way. She left her home and planned to do this before the man even said a prayer. God was at work ordaining all these circumstances to come to pass perfectly. We're being shown that God has indeed sent his messenger before the servant. Really what happens here is, is our attention is being focused on the providence of God, not on the cleverness of the servant. God is at work. This is God's doing. The girl is perfect. She's attractive. She's unmarried. She's pure. She's from the right family. She does all the things requested as a sign and even goes above and beyond. And this was a huge amount of work. It would have taken her perhaps up to two hours to complete this task to go from the trough to the well and back again and water all the camels till they were done drinking. And the servant watches her carefully, almost in disbelief, as if it's too good to be true. God, this is what I asked for. 
and she's going above and beyond what I even asked. Is she the one? Can it be true that you have answered so quickly and so clearly? Well, as she finishes the job, the servant is convinced. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? He honors her with this jewelry. Great honor. This is a sign of wealth. She's probably surprised. She didn't do this because she expected to be paid. And this is not payment. It's an honor. He is blessing her. And then he requests information. Wow, you have the right character. You're beautiful. You fulfilled the sign. But I was told to find someone from my master's house. Tell me, who are you? And he didn't tell her why he's asking. But he asks where she's from, who her family is, and requests lodging for the night. And Rebecca responds that she's not just from Abraham's clan, she's from his family, and that they had plenty of room, plenty of supplies. She says, verse 24, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. Wow. And how does the servant respond to all this? He worships. He worships. He bows his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love, there's that word again, and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. This is God's providence on display, and the servant recognizes that God has done this, and he gives thanks to God. God has shown steadfast love and led him to the right woman. The servant has found Rebecca, the perfect girl. Challenge number one has been solved, but that's only half the battle. There's going to be a second challenge because will her family consent to send her away? And will she be willing to go? Well, that's challenge number two. Challenge number one, find the right girl. Challenge number two is bring her home. And that's what we see in verses 29 through 61. Rebecca runs off to tell her family. She told him, we've got room and we've got supplies, but she can't formally extend the invitation. She's not the head of the household. But she runs home to tell her family because they can make that invitation. And then we see her brother Laban who steps on the scene. In verse 30, or verse 29, it says, Laban ran out towards the man to the spring and we kind of know why, verse 30, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, he's motivated now. And, and he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I've said what I have to say. So Laban shows great hospitality as well. Although we're already shown a little bit of his character, he's financially motivated. And this character, Laban, will appear later and we'll see that he is very manipulative and crafty. But he, do, he doesn't have time to really mess up this situation because things move pretty quick. He invites him home. He sits him down for a meal. Please eat. But the servant says, you know what? Business first. 
business first, and he makes a great sales pitch. We won't read all of it. I'll just draw, you, draw your attention to a few points because he basically recounts everything that's happened to, to this point. The first thing he wants to draw their attention to is to Abraham's wealth and blessing. In verse 34 and 35, he says, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. He says, if you're impressed by this jewelry and the 10 camels parked outside, you haven't seen anything. God has blessed my master with so much. God is with him. He's wealthy. So he's kind of explaining the deal here. Not only does he describe Abraham, he describes Isaac. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. He's got a son, and he's rich, and he's young. You might think that this son of Abraham and Sarah would would be an old man by now, but he's the son of their old age, and he's eligible bachelor, let me tell you. And he's the primary heir of all of Abraham's wealth. And then he recounts his commission. He tells them about God's promise to Abraham. He tells them about God's providence in in guiding them along the way. That Abraham had told him, the Lord's messenger will go before you. He recounts the story of his prayer. Listen, when I arrived at the well, here's what I asked God for. And And then he tells the family about God's provision, that God led me right to your daughter. She did everything above and beyond what I asked. It's very clear that God is at work here. So I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord. I blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. And he gets to the end of this whole story, telling them about Abraham and Isaac and his journey, telling them about his prayer and God's provision. And now comes, now comes the moment of truth. Now then, he says, verse 49, if you were going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, Tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Are you in? Are you guys on board? Are you willing that your daughter should become part of this blessed family? That she would marry the heir of all of Abraham's wealth? The one who is going to be the bearer of the promise? Are you willing to recognize that God has been at work and he is in this? He's led me to you? Are you in? Laban And Bethuel, Rebekah's father, answer. Verse 50, they answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. They recognize that this is undeniably God's doing. This is undeniably God's plan. And once again, how does the servant respond as he sees God working out yet another detail, solving yet another challenge? He worships. When Abraham's servant heard their words, verse 52, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. And he also gave to her brother and her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. Wow. Significant step. The family is willing for her to go. And God is to be praised for this. At every step, God's providence is evident. But they're not out of the woods yet because the next morning the family stalls. When they arose in the morning, there at the end of verse 54, he said, Send me away to my master. The servant is eager to return and complete his mission. 
Verse 55, her brother and her mother said, and understandably, let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least 10 days, and after that she may go. Like, this has all happened really fast. Okay, we just had dinner, and now she's leaving first thing in the morning. We haven't had time to celebrate or say our goodbyes or gather the extended family. Give us a few days. So they're stalling. They're dragging their feet. Verse 56, but the servant said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. Well, the servant says, I know you guys want to stick around, but God is moving. God is in this, and I, I need to get back home. I've been gone long enough, and I don't want to wait around and give opportunity for this thing to fall apart. I need to go now. So how do they solve this stalemate? Verse 57, they decide that Rebecca herself would be the tiebreaker. Let us call the young woman and ask her. Let's ask her. You see, one challenge is getting the family to consent, but Rebecca has to be on board for this deal as well. So they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, just three words, I will go. I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebecca and her young woman arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. It's really amazing here what happens with Rebecca. She consents to go. And this is her statement of faith. It's a big step of faith for her to go with the stranger she met the night before, to leave her family everything she knew. You know, it kind of reminds us of another story, doesn't it? Like her future father-in-law, Rebecca will have to leave her kindred, her home, her country, everything that's familiar, and go to a strange land, all because God is calling her there. And she says yes. She responds in faith. This, more than anything else, shows that she is the right girl. She is going to be a fitting replacement for Sarah in the family of promise. And her departure, just as her departure echoes the call of Abraham, we see here this blessing that they speak over her that echoes the covenantal blessings of Abraham as well. Our sister may become thousands of ten thousands. Sounds a lot like the promise that your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And it says, may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Almost word for word, what God had told Abraham about Isaac back just two chapters before. We see here all of these covenant themes showing she is the right one. She stepped out in faith, but God is the one who is promising and blessing and providing by his providence. Verses 62 through 67 wraps up the story. It's mission accomplished. Isaac had returned from Be'er, Lahai Roy, and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. You wonder what he's meditating on. You know, perhaps he is remembering the mighty acts of God that his father had told him about. Maybe remembering the day that his life was spared because of that ram caught in the thicket. Remembering all of God's promises and the things that were to be his. And it's interesting here, Abraham is not mentioned, only Isaac and the servant even later refers to Isaac as his master. It's very possible that at this point, Abraham has already passed on. And Isaac now is waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And as he lifts up his eyes, he saw 
and behold, there were camels coming. And then the camera shifts and shows us Rebecca's angle, and Rebecca lifted up her eyes. And we get the sense that it's love at first sight. When she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. She prepares for the wedding. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Told him the story about God's provision. Told him about his prayer and the interaction with the family and the amazing confirmation to his prayer and all that Rebekah had done. Verse 67, then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. There's a happy ending for you right there. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. It's really poetic and beautiful how this story comes to a close. They meet in the field. Their eyes lift up, and they see one another. He sees this beautiful woman, and she sees this man and says, who's that guy? Well, that's the one who's to be your husband. And we see the wedding, they come together. And really, we see Isaac's faith here as well. Just as Isaac accepted his father's act of binding him on the altar, so he also accepts his father's plan to acquire a wife for him. And it's not simply because he trusts his dad, it's because he trusts in God's providential provision. And Isaac's heavy heart, I mean, his mother has died, his father has either died or is near death. His heavy heart now rejoices in his wife, and he's comforted. Sarah and Abraham are now off the stage, and they're replaced now by Isaac and Rebekah, a new patriarchal family that is now ready to walk into the future as the bearers of the promise, armed with the confidence that the hand of providence will guide and direct them every step of the way as they hope in his steadfast, covenant-keeping love. It all comes Together. It's a long story with lots of detail, but it's an amazing story to see God's hand working out all the details. And there's really a lot for us to learn here. There's much for us to learn. This story, like so many others in, in Scripture, shows us that God's providence means that He orders events, details, circumstances, conversations. He orders events according to his will for the purpose of fulfilling his promises. Nothing is random. Everything is purposeful. This story is not just about Isaac getting a wife so that he can be happy. It's about the continuation of the covenant people of God. That's why God's so involved about carefully ordering every detail to this end. And this theme of divine providence, preserving and fulfilling the promises of God, it runs through the entire Bible. Wait till we get to Joseph. He'll be able to tell his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Wait till we get to the story of Ruth. We see the providence of God in providing a husband and offspring. Wait till we get to the story of Esther. And we see this woman who's in the palace as a Jew who's able to save the whole nation. Wait till we get to the story of Jesus. When the fullness of time comes, God sends forth his son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. It's an unavoidable conclusion as you read the Bible that God is actively governing all things in order to fulfill his plan and his promises. You see, God's sovereign direction of history has resulted not only in a wife for Isaac, it's resulted in salvation for us. You and I have salvation today through Christ because of what God did here in Genesis chapter 24. The Christ that would come through Isaac and Rebekah's lineage would one day die and rise again so that we can be saved. 
what confidence this should give us that our God is the creator and the sustainer and the providential ruler over all things. We learn a lot about God from this, but we also learn a little bit about how we need to walk through this journey of faith. Just a couple points if you're taking notes this morning. Number one, trusting God's providence leads to action, not paralysis. Trusting in God's providence leads to action, not paralysis. The people in this story believe that God is in control. Abraham believes that. He tells his servant that. The servant believes that. That's why he prays. Rebecca and her family acknowledge that as well, and that's why she steps out in, in faith and goes with him. And Isaac believes that and receives what God has provided. But this passage is filled with action. With the exception of Isaac, nobody's sitting around waiting for anything. They're all doing what God has called them to do. Trusting God's providence leads to action. You see, God accomplishes his plans not apart from human choice and not apart from human action, but often through them. God uses your obedience to accomplish his predetermined plan. God uses human means. We see this all throughout this story. What this means is that we can pray and we can give and we can witness eagerly expecting God to use our obedience to accomplish his plan. Trusting in God, God's providence doesn't mean you sit around on your hands and say, well, God's got a plan, so I'm going to sit here and wait and see what happens. No, it means we step out in faith to obey and act. Secondly, acknowledging God's providence leads to worship, not fatalism. It leads to worship. This is not a doctrine that should disconnect our hearts from reality. Some people think, well, if God is sovereign over everything, if he's got a plan and already knows what's going to happen, oh, well, I guess I'm just going to sit around because God's going to do what he wants anyway. It doesn't matter what I do. No, as, as the people in this passage see God's providence on display, it warms their heart to worship. It fills them with gratitude and trust. It doesn't create apathetic, fatalistic attitudes. No, it creates a heart of worship, a heart of worship. Acknowledging God's providence leads us to worship, not fatalism. And then third, and we'll spend just a couple minutes here, living under God's providence requires wisdom. And this is probably where you all have a lot of questions, as I did when I first started reading this chapter. How are we supposed to pray and act and choose and make decisions in light of this story? Living under God's providence requires wisdom. I want to give a warning this morning, a few cautions. I want to warn you, first of all, against presuming upon God, because that's not what this passage is teaching us to do. This is not a template for testing God. You shouldn't go out into your car after church and say, God, if you want us to eat at Pi 5, I pray that the light would be green when I get to the intersection. But if you want us to eat at Chipotle, I pray that it would be yellow. And then you look for that kind of, no, that's not what this is teaching us to do. This is not a template for testing God. This is not like Gideon's fleece, where, he, where God has commanded him to do something. Gideon was commanded to do something. He says, well, I'll do it if the fleece is dry this morning, and just to double check, if it's wet the next, you know, he, he has this sign, this test. That's not held up as a good thing to emulate, testing God. And I really don't think the servant here is testing God. Remember, this is a unique situation. This is the covenant family that has a concrete promise that they are expecting. 
It's in a unique time, a unique family with unique promise. And the actions of the servant were based upon clear revelation from God. This is not just randomly floating through life and asking God for weird signs. No, that's all rooted, as we saw, in the promise of God. It's confident in his, pro- in his providence, and it's shaped by wisdom. The servant's prayer was very wise. So I want to warn you against presuming upon God. That's not what this text is teaching us to do. I secondly want to offer a warning against mysticism. And this is a real warning. Mysticism. Because too many people go through life looking for subjective and mystical signs as indicators of God's will. And we were joking about the light being red or yellow or green, but some people truly try to discern God's will through all sorts of subjective signs and indicators. You know, a funny-shaped cloud in the sky as they're praying, or a funny feeling in their stomach. Some people try to interpret circumstances around them as if if it's, it's some secret code on the back of the cereal box, and you've lost the decoder ring, but you're still trying to figure out what it means and kind of feeling your way forward. That's not God's will for us. We need to be on guard against mysticism. Things that are so abstract, it's impossible to discern whether or not that's truly what God wants you to do. There's no way to validate it or test it. And some of you this morning who may scoff at the corny mysticism that I've described, you know, if the, red, if the light is red, then we'll go to Pi Phi. Some of you laugh at that. You'd never do that. But maybe some of you have embraced kind of a, what you might call a soft mysticism. And we have Christian labels for this kind of mysticism. I, I call it, you know, quote unquote, open door theology. And many of us use this language. It's not even wrong to use it, but sometimes I think it's misused and, and overemphasized that, well, if God opens a door, then I'll do this. And if God closes this door, then he must not want me to do it. Now, sometimes that may be the case, that that does indicate God's will, but that's not always the best way to determine what God wants you to do. I mean, think of the, the 12 spies that were sent into Canaan. Ten of them came back and said, well, I know God promised us this land, but, you know, God really closed the door. There's people in the land, and they're great, and they're powerful, and they're strong, and they have walled cities, and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. It's really clear that God's closed this door. Maybe he'll open a window for us over here. You know what Joshua and Caleb said? God promised us this land, and yeah, the door looks like it's closed, but let's go knock it down. You know, open-door theology is not always the best way to discern what it is that God wants you to do. And too often, I think we invest too much of our decision-making in, well, is the door open or is it not? You know, God's will for your life may be indicated by opportunities that arise. But you know what? Satan also can create opportunities. They're called temptations. Hey, Adam and Eve, there's an open door here for you to become like God, knowing good and evil. Open doors aren't always things we should walk through. It's not always the best indicator of God's will. Opportunity, again, it may be God's provision. I don't want to discount that. And I even will use that phraseology from time to time. But we have to understand that sometimes what seems like an open door or a closed door may simply be normal circumstances of life that are not charged with any sort of significance. And God's not wanting us to interpret them as any sort of indication of what he is wanting us to do. So what is the best way to determine God's will? What are we to do in light of this passage? Well, I want to give you some positive encouragements. Number one, expect God's provision. That should help us make decisions. Make decisions 
based on the fact that you expect God to provide because he's promised to provide. That's what Abraham and the servant were doing. God had promised them descendants and family, so they needed a wife, so they expected God to provide that. Now, if you're single here this morning, God has not promised you a spouse. It's not in the Bible. So for you to pray the kinds of prayers that the servant prayed is maybe inappropriate, you know? But we can expect God's provision for the things that he has promised, and we ought to thank him when he does provide. So expect God's provision. Secondly, pray for God's guidance. We have a great example here of prayer. And our prayers, like this servant's, should be rooted in God's promises. Lord, this is what you've said. And it should also be expectant of God's character. Lord, I know that this is what you are like, and I want to pray according to your will. So pray. Pray for God's guidance. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. How can we demonstrate trust in the Lord? How can we lean not on our own understanding, but instead acknowledge him? Prayer is one of the best ways to do that. Pray. Pray for God's guidance. And then as you await the answer, God, give me guidance. Expect that he will give guidance. And I want to share with you where he often gives guidance. Look for guidance in the word. Look for guidance in the word. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Too often, we pray for guidance. God, give me guidance. I need to know what to do. I need to know where to go. And we're over here praying for it. And God's saying, I've given you guidance. And you're not even looking at the answers. I've shown you so much that will direct you as to where you are to go, what you are to do, and how you are to do it. Look for guidance in the word. I, I remember as a young man praying through a huge decision, praying for wisdom, seeking God. And you guys know me. I'm not one of those people who says God speaks to us out loud all the time or whatever. But it was almost as if you could hear his voice. As I was sitting there praying, it's like, JD, go read Proverbs. I've already given you lots of answers. Don't sit here paralyzed, afraid to move because you're afraid that something might be difficult. Like, go read my word, get wise, and then make a decision and trust me. You know, God has given us so much revelation and we pray for guidance, but too often we ignore the clearly revealed will of God. God hasn't told you who you're supposed to marry, but he's told you what kind of person you're supposed to marry. And he's told you what kind of motives you should have. And he's told you what your true needs are. And it's not marriage, it's Christ. And if you saturate your heart with this truth, you will make the right decision about who to marry. God's given us so much guidance. Look for guidance in the word. Don't ignore his revealed will. And now some of you might be saying, well, J.D., doesn't this minimize the role of the Holy Spirit? I mean, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. Shouldn't we be submitted to his leading and his guidance and I would say absolutely we should. And rather than minimize the role of the Holy Spirit, I think that opening your Bible is the best way to listen to the Holy Spirit. I love what J.I. Packer writes in his book, Knowing God. If you've never read it, you must go read it. And if you have read it, go read it again. It's really good. Here's what he says in one of the final chapters of the book about seeking God's guidance. He says this, The way to honor the Holy Spirit as our guide is to honor the Holy Scriptures through which he guides us. The fundamental guidance which God gives to shape our lives, the instilling, that is, of the basic convictions, attitudes, ideals, and value judgments in terms of which we are to live, is not a matter of inward promptings apart from the word, 
but of the pressure on our consciences of the portrayal of God's character and will in the word, which the Spirit enlightens us to understand and apply to ourselves. That's kind of wordy, kind of dense. But what Packer is saying is that the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to shape and instill within us the convictions that we need, the attitudes we need, the kind of ideals we need, the value judgments, so that we can be wise and make good choices. That's how God often, most often guides his people. Yes, God may give a kind of sense of leading and direction at times, but that's not the primary or most common way we are to seek his will. It's here in the word. He gives us wisdom. James promises, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Because God gives generously. And it's the wisdom that we receive through the word and the ministry of the spirit that more often than not will guide us to make the right kind of decision. Uh, Later in this chapter, Packer shares six pitfalls that we often slip into when seeking to make decisions, being guided by God. One is an unwillingness to think. And again, here's, here's the warning. Don't discount the value of wisdom. God has given us a compass. He's given us a mind. He's given us gifts of reason and the illumination of his word. And it's not spiritual for us. Get, hear me, please. It is not spiritual to ignore clear truth and wisdom and to prioritize instead subjective feelings. That's not spiritually superior to what Psalm 119 says, that your word is a lamp to my feet and light to my path. So an unwillingness to think is a pitfall. But secondly, an unwillingness to think ahead. Wisdom thinks not just about the moment, but about the long-range end, even beyond death, like we talked about last week. We need to be willing to consider the long range. Deuteronomy 32, 29, Moses, as he's preaching to the people, says, oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. That's what we need. Sometimes we make poor decisions and we miss the will of God because of our unwillingness to think ahead. Another pitfall is an unwillingness to take advice. Some of you pray for wisdom. God, show me what you want me to do. Lead me. And maybe you even open your Bible, but you miss a second resource, which is you you never talk to other people about it. You make decisions in a silo with no input, no counsel. Maybe part of that is because you don't want to hear what other people are going to tell you. That's not spiritual. Some of us get on our knees and pray for guidance, and God says, I've given you guidance in my church. There are wise people who know the word better than you do, who have been through situations you haven't been through, who see things that you don't see because of your proximity to the situation, and they can help you, but too often we won't listen. We won't listen. An unwillingness to take advice, Proverbs says, is not spiritual. It's not seeking the will of God and closing out all others. It's foolishness. Fools hate instruction. Fools do not listen to counsel. But within a multitude of counselors, the Bible tells us there's safety. An unwillingness unwillingness to take advice is a pitfall. Another is an unwillingness to suspect yourself. You know, too often we think, well, I think I know what God wants me to do, and I'm confident in it. And we're pretty confident in our ability to interpret everything that's going on, and we really trust our own judgment too much. And this goes hand in hand with, with an unwillingness to listen to others. If you don't suspect yourself, if you don't doubt the corrupting powers of your own heart, which is deceitful and desperately sick, the Bible tells us. That's foolish. We need to be aware of our ability to deceive ourselves. We need to 
we need to doubt our ability to take all things into consideration. Our perspective is always limited and narrow. And you need to be slow to trust your judgment. Too often we are overconfident. We're not sitting around wondering what God wants us to do, paralyzed in fear. We're just doing stuff and moving on and making decisions because we're so confident in our ability. And we don't suspect ourselves enough. And a last uh, pitfall that Packer shares, actually two more. One more would be an unwillingness to discount what he calls personal magnetism. Here's the truth. Other people have powerful personalities. And we need to be cautious that other people don't influence us more than God is influencing us. You know, there are false teachers out there who will tell you this is what God wants you to do. There's a bunch on TV right now as we're speaking. And they're telling people that God's will is for you to give me lots of money and then he's going to bless you and I can buy another jet. And they have powerful personalities. They're skilled speakers. And somehow they manipulate people into thinking that this must be God's will for me. Be cautious. Be cautious about the compelling power of other people's personalities. This can even include family members. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, test everything and hold fast to what is good. We should test everything. And a final one, a final pitfall that Packer lists is an unwillingness to wait. An unwillingness to wait. Often we make poor decisions and we miss God's will because we're simply not willing to wait. Psalm 27.14 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Psalm 25.3, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Psalm 33.20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Are you unwilling to wait on God? God, provide for me, and I believe you will, but I need you to do it in the next five minutes. Otherwise, I'm resorting to plan B. Too often, that's, maybe we wouldn't say that out loud, but that's what's going on in our hearts. Let's avoid these pitfalls as we seek to make good choices. God's guidance can be a difficult thing, but he gives us his spirit. He gives us his word. He gives us the gift of wisdom. He gives us the gift of the church and community and counsel. So if you're wondering, what should I do? God is not hiding behind door number one, two, or three and expecting you to make a blind leap in the dark. He's given us much light and direction. And because we believe God is is in control of all events and all all things that happen, we can actually pick door, sometimes door one, two, or three, trusting that God is going to work it out, and I don't have to know his secret will. I simply need to know his promises, I need to trust them, and I need to act in faith. And we can trust, like these people did in this chapter, that God is at work. Faith in God's promises will produce a dependence on God's providence, won't it? Let's trust in the God who directs all things according to his will. Let's seek him in prayer. Let's expect his provision, and let's worship him when he does provide. Let's worship him for his steadfast, covenant-keeping love. God, you are so good to us, and you always keep your promises. I pray that you'd give us wisdom as we seek to make choices and make decisions. I pray, God, that we would trust in your providence, that you govern and sustain and direct all things all things for the purpose of your will. Lord, humble us with that truth this morning. Comfort us with that truth. And I pray that you would move us to wise obedience and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.